0: Welcome to Foothills Church, Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome. Boy, the music's always so intense. I want to invite you to just be a part of the Foothills family. We're welcoming to you, and we're so glad that you're here. Even if you just moved from out of state. We have the welcome mat out for you and say you can be a part of our family. Our family focuses primarily on helping you grow in your faith. Our goal is to help you know Jesus, walk with him, understand who he is, what he said, what he did, what he's doing in your life. Now, this may sound strange, but one year ago is when Idaho got its stay-at-home order and we locked down and the last Sunday in March was kind of the... The beginning of this uh, COVID conundrum that we have all lived through over the past year. Isn't it been an amazing journey, to say the least? How many challenges have you faced? I know a lot of people face a lot of challenges. There was Emily. Uh, Emily is a gal who's straight A student and really into sports. She wanted to go to university on a D1 scholarship. Uh, she played basketball and she played uh, soccer and one of the things that was really interesting is her basketball uh, thing, she had worked really hard, and she was a starter on the varsity team. She was a starter on, in varsity on the soccer, and she needed tape, you know, so that recruiters could look at it, and uh, into her senior year of basketball season, they canceled it because of COVID. And then they, of course, canceled the entire spring soccer season. She wasn't able to walk with her graduating class. She got her diploma in the mail, and then the school that she, university she wanted to go to, didn't have uh, on-campus uh, classes. So it is really, her parents say, it's just really thrown her for a loop, you know? It's just been really tough on her. As a matter of fact, there's an organization called Higher Edge Today said that students that were juniors, seniors, freshmen in college have uh, rates of anxiety and depression up to 50%, one out of every two young people because of what they had to go through and what they lost in the pandemic. Uh, uh, there's a couple, Steve and Jen, they have three kids, uh, the oldest in middle school, the rest in elementary school. And they were told, Hey, you're going to have to work from home. And at first it's like, well, that's not so bad as long as we have toilet paper, you know, that's not so bad. But, uh, then they canceled school. And so now they're trying to juggle jobs and kids and be concerned about their education. It was a really, I mean, a huge, uh, transition, difficult time for them. A couple, John and Mary, uh, married over 62 years. She was in assisted care, and they quarantined her, and he couldn't see her. Uh, For a portion of time, they wouldn't even let him walk outside up to the window and look through the window at his wife of 62 years. Think about dating. What did people who were dating go through? What is dating at this time? I mean, I can't imagine what that's like, you know. I mean, all your are dating is through texting, and then you brave a phone call, right? And then once your phone call's over, after nine months, you finally see the person and go, you're not the same person in that picture. <laughs> There's been loss of jobs, businesses, careers. There's been a lot of really difficult things. And um, I think one of the, the biggest things is that uh instead of our leadership, our political leadership coming together and trying to you know bond together and help all Americans get through this because it was an election year, which was very unfortunate, is that it became really divisive, you know, and there was a loss of humility, I think uh, no one would say, "Hey, we were wrong, it was always a blame, you know well, they're this and that and you know. What you did was dependent upon uh, what color uh, or name of your political party was. And that was really unfortunate. And as an optimist, I'm thinking, man, what is it that I could, you know, think about people that agree on, that get people to come together, things that people really enjoy? Uh, uh, And I found something that almost all Americans agree on, and that is they feel either let down or betrayed by their politicians. That's one of the gr- biggest agreements. Some people say, our politicians failed us. They didn't do enough. They, they didn't really uh, react properly. And hundreds of thousands of people died from the virus. Then there's a whole bunch of other people say, our politicians way overreacted. They have no idea what they were doing. And they made life so much worse for everybody else. So one agreement all Americans seem to have right now is they're not very happy with their politicians. So on, Pal- on Palm Sunday which is the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem and they cut the palm branches off and threw them down. And they sang, you know, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And the, the, Jesus the King is here. And a lot of people wanted Jesus to be a politician. They wanted him to be the Messiah that was going to free them from the oppressive arm of the Romans. At the end of that week, he was hanging on a cross. So I thought, what better Sunday than to ask the question, what would Jesus say to politicians? Oh my goodness! Some people are thinking, "Yeah, I'm ready to go." Um, you know, we're gonna get out, you know, the, the Bible gun. We're just gonna shoot holes in all our politicians. So other people are like, "Oh my goodness, I don't want your political message." Other people are saying, "Well, I, what I'm thinking is that when you do what I do, it's really important because a lot of people like to speak for Jesus. A lot of people like to say this is what he says. Oftentimes." They are wrong. And so it's very important to be biblically accurate and see what Jesus actually would say and if what he would say is applicable to us today. But before we do that, we have to have a, a set of context, you know, and a few jokes and so forth like that. So let's uh, define politics, okay? And if you guys want to do a word study on politics, Politics comes from the word poly, which means many, and ticks, which are blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> That's too easy, right? That's not what it means. That's a joke. Actually, the word politics comes from an ancient word, a Greek word, which is polis. And the word polis means city. And Aristotle wrote in the fourth century, so this is like over 300 years before Jesus Christ was even born. He wrote a book called Politica, and it talks about how you get people within a city to have a social agreement on how to govern themselves and live together in harmony. And that was some of the earliest political philosophy. Now, what's interesting is today, what I'd like to do is, like I said, be very careful and only say what I think Jesus would actually say and how that would translate to politicians today. And it's very important to know this biblical truth, and that is the New Testament does not advocate a form of government, okay? The New Testament does not advocate a structured form of governance of human beings. It doesn't do that at all. It's so unique because all the other belief systems do. The Qur'an and the Hadith has a very specific geopolitical form of government. You look at Hinduism in the Vedas. you look at the Tripitaka, which is uh, basically the three loaves for Buddhism. One of the three loaves is all about political governance of a monastery. So a lot of ancient political things, even Judaism looks to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there is what? There is a form of government set up with laws, particularly in the book of Leviticus. You can go read what the ancient Jews had to do in the nation of Israel. But the New Testament, the testament under which we exist is a covenant with God through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was risen from the dead, it proposes no specific form of government. On the other hand, it talks a lot about principles. And these principles are the principles that our nation, America, was built upon. And it was these principles that allowed our founding fathers to develop a political theory. And that political theory is a constitutional representative republic, otherwise known as the United States Of America. So today, it would be really easy to just criticize our political leaders. However, if we were to do that, we would be just like every postmodern deconstructionist who thinks they're really smart because they can tear things down. So that is not my goal. My goal is to talk about the principles that Jesus Christ would talk about. Now, I can't cover them all, Uh, I picked the top three that I think are most influential. And I hope that by sharing them with you, you can then uh, internalize them, think about them as you work out how you feel and what you believe you should be doing and what our politicians should be doing. So let's jump in and let's go to the first biblical principle. And I phrased it in a way as if Jesus was talking, right? And I want to be really, really careful. And I think this is a very big one. It's very important. And this is what Jesus would say to politicians today. He would say that my followers are called to citizenship in heaven. In John chapter 18:36, Jesus is brought before the Roman authorities and they're drilling him right before he's executed, saying, on what authority are you doing this? Are you really a king? Are you trying to rebel against Rome? And this is what Jesus says. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. So you notice what he's saying. He's saying, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers right now would be fighting. There would be a a skirmish going on between my followers and the Jewish leadership and their temple guards. But that's not happening. He goes, because my kingdom is from another place. What is that place? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians and in Philippians, and I think it's most particularly articulated in chapter 3, verse 20 of the book of Philippians, it says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven, not here on earth, but in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the most important things up front to realize is that Jesus would say that my followers are called to citizenship in heaven. So what does that mean? mean? How does that work out in today's world? Well, I think it means Jesus would say to politicians that I am here to build my church. I am here to bring people into a relationship with me in order to heal their souls. I am not here to create a new earthly government or a theocracy, I am here to defeat evil which poisons the souls of human beings and set them free from the bondage of the ruler of this world. I believe that, I think he would say, human government is necessary, but it is not the end goal in life. You see, citizenship in heaven is the end goal of life life. He would say to politicians today, when you sought office, it was a noble thing. When you were elected, it became an honorable thing. And the goal is to serve and not be served. Now, Jesus isn't saying this. This is my opinion. But this is why it annoys me to know in when our Political leaders in Congress or state legislature pass laws that are binding for all of us and then they exempt themselves from those very same laws. That is not serving sacrificially at all. Now back to what Jesus would say. I think Jesus would say, look, if you are elected to an office, you have to do everything you can to ensure that your decisions are not selfishly motivated or have any vanity to them. Otherwise, you will fall into the temptation of corruption that so many other people have fallen into. And as that Lord Acton has said, power always does what? It corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you have to be very careful of that. Now, it's difficult, and we should have compassion on our political leaders. Oh, I know that's a dangerous thing to say. We should be nice to them. Oh, don't say that, pastor. But the incentive structure that they're in, their incentive subconsciously and consciously is to pander to their constituency. (laughs) See, it's to not act in the best interest of everyone, but to act in the best interest of the groups that did what? Brought them to power. So that's a tough spot to be in. That doesn't excuse bad behavior or selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, what's interesting about these principles that Jesus says, hey, our citizenship is in heaven and we should remind political leaders that the followers of Christ have their citizenship in heaven is not only good for politicians to hear, but it's actually good for you and me to hear. It's applicable to you and I. You see, when we live out this principle in our own life, you know what it does for us is that regardless of the political air. Swinging one way or the other, it helps us set the right kind of priorities in our own life. We're not living for something just purely earthly, but we're living for something more eternal, something towards our citizenship in heaven. And this clarifies our decision-making process. It helps us make better decisions because we're playing the long game, so to speak. It also gives us a protective covering over our heart and our faith. Now, I'm going to do something I really regret doing, and that is uh, I'm going to talk about when I first became politically aware, and I regret having to do this because it dates my age. (laughs) I became politically aware when I was in college and Reagan was president of the United States. Yeah, that was just a little bit ago, wasn't it? So I lived through President Reagan, and one reason I became politically aware at that time was because I had been studying about people who had been martyred for their faith in Eastern Bloc communist countries. People had been arrested, beaten, and tortured to death by the Soviet communist regime for no other reason than they refused to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. So I wasn't a fan when it became apparent that Ronald Reagan then went to Berlin and he told the premier at that time of Russia, his name was Gorbachev, he said, Gorbachev, tear down this wall and the wall came down. That, that was, see, that's when, I, boy, that was really interesting to me. And then after that, you know, there was H.W. Bush, the older uh, Bush. He was elected for four years and then in an interesting thing is that he did, not, he did not win re-election for a second term. Uh, Bill Clinton won, and the reason why was because of a short guy by the name of Ross Perot. Ross Perot showed, showed up, and he had the most annoying voice. Hi, I'm Ross Perot. Everybody's here, don't spend too much money, and I can say anything I want because I'm a billionaire from my yacht. That's Ross Perot right there. I had people email me after first service saying that was the best Ross Perot impersonation <laughs> I've ever heard. And I don't do impersonations. But then there was Clinton, and we went through Clinton. And after Clinton, was, uh, his, term, his two terms ended, then we had George W. Bush, and then we had uh, Barack Obama, then we had Donald Trump, and now we have Biden. Now, from my perspective, you know what that tells me? politics in America always change. They always change. And the thing is, is that though it's important to be informed, it's important to have opinions. It's important to to vote judiciously. It's important to fight for what you believe in. Don't ever forget that our citizenship is in heaven, and that will protect your heart. Because one of the things is is that if the political winds swing with you or away from you, what you always have to realize is that if you get bitter and angry and filled with hate, that's Satan's playground in your heart. That's what he wants. And so our admonition from Christ is that first and foremost, our priority is that our citizenship is in heaven. And once we really eternalize that, it gives us a much better attitude and approach to how politics in America works. Because the second thing I think that Jesus would say more than anything else is this, is that government, its system of structures and institutions and organizations are simply a tool. They're not a faith. They're not a religion. They can't heal your heart. Now, how do I know this? Well, Jesus has a really interesting discussion with a group of Pharisees that were trying to trick him in Matthew chapter 22. And what they were trying to do is this, is that so many Jewish people were following Jesus as a leader. And so there was this thing is that if I say to the Jewish people that we should pay our taxes to Rome, then I am violating the nationalistic zeal of Jewish people, because their goal was to be independent, right? They wanted to follow the covenant, have God set them free, and the Messiah that was going to lead them to new political kingdom had to believe to throw off the bondage of the Romans. So you would never willingly say we are supposed to pay our taxes to Rome. But then on the other side of it is if you say I'm not supposed to pay my taxes, then Rome. Looks at that as sedition. They hunt you down and execute you for that. So they're trying to get him in this trap. And this is what he says, beginning with verse 17. The Pharisees say then, tell us, Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, oh, you misguided, well-intentioned people who are trying to do a good thing and just don't misunderstand. Is that how Jesus talks? Jesus don't talk that way, you know. Um, Jesus said, you guys are hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they bring him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied, and he says to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Now, so what does he do in that moment? Is he demarcates the two, doesn't he? He kind of separates them, and he basically is saying, look, there's God in his kingdom, in his economy, what's happening, and then there's this worldly one that is a government right now. It's set up by Rome, and at the top of it is Caesar, and this is their tool or their system by which they choose to do it. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's the best, but I am saying that they are separate. So how would that translate into what we're doing today? I think if our citizenship is first in heaven, then that allows us to have a greater objectivity to the tool of a constitutional republic that's representative of your vote. I think that he would say this. I think he would say, look, government can never accomplish what I came to do. And that is, I came to heal the human heart. Therefore, the there's no government structure that can ever do that there will be no societal utopia ever established here on earth without god it just won't happen because the people who are thinking up the way to do it are flawed sinful human beings and the whole system is filled with what flawed human beings now from a political theory standpoint sorry to throw out some history and some political philosophy for you but i can't help myself Karl Marx was a person who was raised in a very religious home in Germany, very religious. But when he got older, what he did is he started to focus on political theory. He wrote a number of books and his political theory evolved over time. Okay? And what happened is the most popular one is the Communist Manifesto, but he wrote other stuff and then it kind of progressed, it got more rigid as it progressed. And This is the political theory that Russia established during what was known as the Bolshevik Revolution. This is the political theory of China and Mao's cultural revolution. This is the political theory of the Khmer Rouge, the North Vietnamese, uh, what's happening in Venezuela, what happened in Cuba. All of these things were based upon this specific political ideology. Now, you could debate that all day long, but when you strip it all down, Marx's greatest flaw was this. He believed that he could bring the kingdom of God to earth without God. That's it. We can create the utopia of the new heaven and the new earth without heaven, without God, with anything else by just simply a political ideology. What does history say how that turned out? Not so good. So what would Jesus say? Jesus would say that our government systems are tools. And when you think of them that way, you can think more objectively about their application. And you don't get so wedded to a particular thing. It allows you to be more objective and data-driven and research-driven to what is ultimately the best way to do things for you. The American people. I think that's a very reasonable thing to approach as a polit- that politicians ought to know about the people of God, and I think that will help you and help me as well as we navigate through all this craziness. Now, the last thing is this, and that is, Jesus would also say, "I want all politicians and all government." Leaders to know is that in the end, my people will obey me rather than you. My people will obey me rather than you. Now, this is a very important thing to understand because it's misused a lot. For instance, the five year old that wouldn't go to bed, right? And he says to mom and dad, I want to say my prayers. And mom says, Look, you said your prayers five times. You've gotten five drinks of water. You've gone to the bathroom six times. You've kissed all your stuffed animals four times, and we've read you three stories. We want you to go to bed and go to bed now. And that five-year-old says, I will obey God rather than you. That's what I would call an abuse of that principle. That's a critically important principle. The problem is that as believers, we can apply it to the wrong situation real easily if we're not careful. So let's let's see where is it applied. I'm going to read the whole story of this to you out of the book of Acts and it comes with Acts chapter 7, okay? Beginning with verse 17. And here is what it says. Acts oh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees. So they had a party of Sadducees. It was a political party who was in charge, along with the Pharisees. So they had a divided Sanhedrin, much like our Congress today. Okay. Now, in some ways, they were both, though, very much on the same page, more than our Congress is today. He says, they were filled with jealousy. So what does that tell you about politicians? Is that they can be motivated by what? Not such good things. Why? Because they're human beings like all the rest of us. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people all about this new life. Tell them about new life in Jesus Christ. Now, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. Now, listen to this report. You know what this report sounds like? It sounds like a teenager that says, Dad, I brought the car home, man. I parked it in the driveway perfectly. It was there all night. I don't know why that dent's there because it was perfect when I put it there. I took pictures and have witnesses. Listen to this report from these, from these guys. This is hilarious. Verse 23, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, no one was inside. <laughs> I have no idea how that dent got there, Dad. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So the apostles were told, please come and meet. And they did so. They acquiesced to that command. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you a strict order not to teach in this name, he said. There you have it. We told you you cannot preach the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. Isn't that interesting? You see, sometimes what some Christians will say is that, well, nowhere in the New Testament does it say that we have to pay taxes, and so I'm going to obey God rather than men, you know, and I'm going to not pay my taxes. That's not an application of that biblical principle that's fair, rational, or just. You see, what he's saying particularly right here is this, is that you have been called as a citizen of heaven to preach the name of Jesus Christ so that people can find freedom and healing for their souls by coming to know him in faith. But Rome was a pluralistic society. And what's really interesting about a pluralistic society is this, is the term we would use to describe it today is diversity. We would say that, well, we don't only want to have ethnic diversity. We also want to have ideological diversity. We want to have intellectual diversity. We want to have this diversity, that diversity, that diversity. So when you have all these different diversities, you have what is known as pluralism. How do you have an agreement for all of these groups of people live together in harmony? Well, the way Rome did it is this, is the way Rome kept Rome unified is they had a simple approach. You can have whatever God you want. Everybody has multiple gods because we're all pagans, by the way, in Rome. And you can have your house gods, your family gods, your city gods. You can build your own temples. You can do your own stuff as long as you say Kaiser Curios. And that was Latin for Caesar is Lord. Not Caesar is king, or Caesar's the boss, or the big kahuna, or the bad dad, or the steelhead of life. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying he is Lord over all of your gods. Well, guess what? Christians had a real problem with saying that. Christians couldn't say that. Christians would only say, Christos, Kyrios. Christ is Lord. Because Jesus was not only God in heaven, he was also a man crucified on a cross. And because he was a real man that was crucified on a cross, Rome knew this. And so Rome, for 300 years, brutally persecuted Christians. And the biggest thing is that they would pull them into trial and they would say, say Kaiser Curios, they refused. They would only say Christos Curios, and so they would be executed, either fed to lions, run through with a sword, have their heads chopped off. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal persecution. This is where all the early martyrs came from. A lot of people are not aware of this, but the term martyr is the last name of the first, one of the first guys that was killed other than Stephen in the New Testament for his faith, and his name was Justin Martyr. That was his name. And so in the early, early centuries of the church, persecution was brutal because people would not stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ as Lord over heaven and earth. Now, what's interesting about that is because this happens so often is that Christians learn to talk to one another without revealing who they were so that they wouldn't have to be called out. And so if you were in the marketplace or in the city or the town, anywhere you were, and you'd met someone you never met before and you were talking to them, is you would take your foot, your right foot, you'd start on the left side and you'd draw a curve, right? Just in the dirt, right in front of you. And this is what it looked like, you know, just a line. Now, if you have a person that's talking face-to-face with you, they can do the exact same thing, start from left to right and draw a curve, and this is what you end up with, this little symbol. And this symbol looks like a fish, right? And so this was the fish symbol in the first 300 years of the church. You put a little eyeball right there, then uh, you'd have a little fish. If you see a hook in the mouth, then that would be the fish that broke my line and got away. That'd be that fish. Now, see, nobody laughed first service when I said that either. And I think that's a funny joke. <laughs> Nonetheless, what's really interesting is the reason they did this is because the Greek word for fish is ichthus, right? That's the actual word. Ichthus in Koine Greek means fish. Well, what's fascinating is that if you look at the letters that make up the word, this is the in Greek, this is the letter I, which is the first letter of the word Jesus in Koine Greek. The C, which he is the first letter of Christ or Christos. Theos is the root word for God. It's declined in a way, and declension means you modify the root word for different meanings, is that theus means son of God. So Ichthus is Jesus Christ, son of God. So you would drive, draw the fish, in order to say, Jesus is Lord. And that's how they communicated to each other for 300 years. Isn't that interesting? So what does this mean for you and for I today? We live in a pluralistic society. What what is our society telling us to do? Our our society is saying, look, if you follow Jesus, that's cool. You could do whatever you want in your private life but keep it private. You can, you can say Jesus is awesome, but when you say Jesus is the only way to heaven, you can't say that. Mm-mm. There's many ways. You can't say that. See, what in a pluralistic society, what they are most afraid of, the unpardonable sin, is what is called an objective truth claim. When you have a truth that transcends all truths, applies to everybody, regardless of the language you speak, regardless of how much or how little money you have, regardless of your marital status, your ethnicity, everything. It's 100% applicable to every human being. And that is when we make the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, for he is the one that came to set us free from his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, so you can put Jesus' symbology on anything today, you know. I mean, Cardi B wears cross earrings. If you're not familiar with Cardi B, please do not Google her. <laughs> do not. Listen to the Salty Pastor and you'll know what that's about you can have gang members right that are doing hard time in prison you know they got the teardrops they got all this stuff and what what do they tattoo they tattoo crosses on their back right so you can have jesus symbology all over the place people love it but don't say jesus is the only way to heaven oh you can't say that because that's an objective truth claim but at its core that's what it's all about Jesus would say that my definition of what it means to be a human being is the only real, authentic, truth-based definition. And that is, we need to be set free so that we can become the people we were meant to be. I think that Jesus would say to politicians today is don't forget that my followers will strive to be the best citizens they can be regardless of the political system because I asked them to do that. I asked them to be people of peace. I asked them to be people of reconciliation. I asked them to be people who stand up for what's right, but don't ever ask them to not preach my kingdom because they will obey me before they obey you. And you know who found out the truth of that so difficult was the Russians. One of the uh, heads of state there in Russia, he said, the thing is, is we tried to get rid of Christianity, and we found out Christianity is a nail. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? He says, the harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. Guess who else figured that out? Mao and his cultural revolution. As soon as he died, what they did is they left his, socio, uh, uh, his economic approach And today, the fastest growing region for Christianity in the world today is China. Isn't that interesting? You see, over and over again, people have tried to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they can't because it's real. You see, if it was just an ideology or if it was just an opinion or if just some type of historical thing, maybe you could get it to cease to exist. There's so many things today that people have no idea what they are. You know, like Gnosticism or volopsarianism, or Nestorianism or Marconiism. You're like, what in the world are all those? Those were massive belief systems and religions throughout the history of the world that completely and 100% died out. Why? Because they weren't real. The one real thing is this: is that Jesus Christ, Son of God, came to us in the form of a man. He died on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he walked out of that grave. And when he did that, he called your name. And that will transcend anything our politicians ever do, good or bad. So let us be people of hope. Let us be people of faith. Let us be people of love. Because that's what Jesus would say. Us. Let's listen to our Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.